Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators and the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, I just went on a hot air balloon. I know. I was really jealous. I saw the pictures. It's, it's like the coolest looking thing ever, just a bunch of hot air balloons in the yes, air. Yes, it was amazing. There was like hundreds of balloons. I was in Albuquerque and they would have balloon fiesta and it was just absolutely amazing. And every minute of it, I was like, oh my God, I'm in a balloon. Yeah. I've seen, I've had friends who've done it before. Whenever they take pictures of it, it seems like some amazing artist took pictures of the hot air balloon because it's so cool looking. It just looks unique almost. You can't, right, right. So, how was New Mexico? I love New Mexico. My, uh, my wife's from New Mexico. So, her in, so my in laws are there. And so, Violet was hanging out with Noni and Pop. But yeah, so I spent a lot of time in New Mexico, at least once a year. Yeah, we were um, we went through. I'd not spent a lot of time in in New Mexico, but we went through Santa Fe. Oh, nice! And other parts of New Mexico. Yeah, over spring break last year, and it's a really interesting town. And you know, there's a lot of Native American history in kind of the downtown area. Yeah. But I think one of the things I've kind of learned to figure out, like I'm always kind of looking with a skeptical eye of like, is this kind of authentic? You know, oh, indigenous. Yeah history and culture, or is this somebody trying to make kind of a profit here? And I'm always trying to decipher like what, cause there's all these shops and all these things kind of around the downtown area. And so the last time I was there, I actually just sent, I was looking at all these picture books right. that were indigenous and I just sent pictures to Debbie Reese and she's just like, no, 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 yes, no, no, oh, that's yes, interesting. no. And so, yeah, she just literally gave me very direct answers to, and, and answered all the questions I had. So that's- it's good to have Twitter friends who can you know, who are more knowledgeable than you and, and can give you some advice. That's true. So when I was on the hot air balloon, there were, the wind was blowing in the wrong direction. And it looked like we were going to go land in the Sandia Pueblo. Mm-hmm. And that is interesting. It's right by the San, Well, yeah. It's, so we're in Albuquerque. It's right outside of the balloon fiesta. And so, or the balloon fiesta park. And so one of the things they said was that if we land on the Sandia Puebla, that we would be the process for us getting us out would be kind of intricate. And I thought that was interesting and I didn't really understand why. And so I was like, well, what's going on? And they're like, well, because they're a sovereign nation. And I was like, Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense. And so they were talking about like the process that they had to do. They had to like, look at the rules, look at the laws to, you know, talk to the, um, to the, to the people there. And it was really fascinating. We ended up not, uh, landing in, in, in near the well, we didn't land there, so we didn't have to do that. I was absolutely curious about how sovereign nations work. You know, mm-hmm. well, we certainly don't seem to do a good job of talking about it in schools, right. right? I think we we tend to teach about the United States government, mm-hmm. 
and that's it. Like, really, that's kind of it, right? Like, we don't teach, we, comparative governments barely talk. Right. And then sovereign nations within the United States, territories are not really taught, right? Yeah. So where are you supposed to become knowledgeable about this, especially when you're going on a hot air balloon trip? Exactly. These are some things you need to know. But I was really excited for today when we have, because we have a a really neat uh, discussion today. And I was like, oh my God, we can totally talk about this. This is an amazing introduction. So that is our introduction today. (laughs) We would like to welcome into the podcast Sarah Shear, Leilani Sabzalian, and Lisa Brown Buchanan. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you for Thanks being for here. Thanks for having us, guys. Hey. Thank Sarah, you. Sarah, you're familiar with us, episode 15 guest, guest, which means you're officially a friend of the pod. Woo-hoo. Second, <laughs> once you're on twice, friend of the pod. But could you start off and could each of you tell us a little bit about your backgrounds in education? Sure. So I'll start. Sarah, I'm currently an assistant professor of social studies education at Penn State University in Altoona. So go central PA. So I've taught classrooms. I've taught all the grades, but primarily seven through 12 social studies in Connecticut, which is where I grew up. And the school district where I grew up and also taught in was between the Mashantucket Pequot Nation and the Mohican Nation. So these issues have always been really important to me and have become even more so now that I'm a teacher educator. Cool. That's great. Leilani Sebzalian, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you. I wish I were up in a hot air balloon. (sighs) Next time I'll take you. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for having us on the podcast. My name is Leilani Sebzalian. I am an assistant professor of indigenous studies and education at the University of Oregon. I was trained to be an elementary teacher, and then I taught for a bit in Paraguay at the elementary and and middle school level, and then I taught again at a Native Hawaiian charter school that was a place-based and culture-based charter school for Native Hawaiian youth in grades K through 12. And after that, I came back to the University of Oregon to study uh, Indigenous Studies and Education. Leilani, I'm always curious when you teach in other countries, or you, what, what was different? What, what can we learn from, from your experiences teaching abroad? Well, I was teaching as part of the Peace Corps. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Paraguay, awesome. um, which is, on the one hand, a very awesome experience. On the other hand, deeply implicated in the colonial project, right, in the imperialist project. One thing that was so interesting to me is that, you know, I was recruited to work with students and also teachers to share literacy methods and techniques that I had learned here in the teacher education program. But the students had a profound literacy that wasn't recognized by their schools. I mean, the stories that they knew of where they grew up and their homelands, the medicinal use of plants, you know, all around their all around the school grounds, all around their homes. You know, kids could point at what I could only really call plants or weeds, just kind of these generic categories. Kids could tell you, oh, that's this herb and that's really good for this. Oh, that's this herb and you take it at this. Oh, that's this and you put it in your tea. You know, so one thing I learned from that experience was that even in a place, I guess, as far away, uh, Western forms of education were valued, but not necessarily the best best model for what counts as education. That's really interesting. And because we so often don't even 
deconstruct what we mean by education and learning. And there's so many assumptions built into Western schools about what learning is. And it positions everyone as like a deficit perspective, right? If you don't know the things schools are teaching, then your goal in schools is to learn the things that they tell you. And so, and then some students are even more at a deficit because nothing about their cultures, their backgrounds are really honored in the school space. So that's really neat to hear how you were able to see all the wisdom and knowledge those students had from their local communities. And Lisa. Uh, my name is Lisa Brown Buchanan, and I am an associate professor of elementary social studies at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington. And uh, prior to joining the faculty there in 2012, I was a classroom teacher at the elementary level. So I started my teaching career in fifth grade and then moved to fourth grade. And then while I was in fourth grade, I became also a, an inclusion classroom teacher. So I was the elementary uh, classroom teacher who hosted an inclusion class for several years. Um, so that's my elementary teaching background. Um, and then, like I said, I came to Willington, which is about three hours from my home area in 2012. And that's where I've been since then. So you were recently published in Social Studies and the Young Learner for an article entitled Affirming Indigenous Sovereignty, a Civics Inquiry. Can you tell us about the article? So this originally started as a conversation Lisa and I were having a while ago. I've lost sense of time and space as to how long we've been working on this. But we originally started talking about doing an article around colonization and the issues of colonization, particularly the, the aspects of settler colonialism that we don't cover ever in elementary social studies. And as we got talking more and more, it, the more we started turning to talking about sovereignty and issues of indigenous citizenship. And then Leilani and I had just finished a book chapter in the elementary, the recently published elementary book. We had done a chapter together on the importance of bringing issues of sovereignty and indigenous citizenship into elementary teacher ed. So essentially we had like a Captain Planet moment where all of our powers combined nice. um, and to create this to create this article, which is from what I understand, like the first of its kind in SSYL history. I think the only other article that kind of spans the the idea of looking at indigenous representation in social studies from indigenous points of view was Golden's Pocahontas article which was some years ago, but otherwise SSYL has not been open to this conversation before. And which is really unfortunate considering how much civics education is usually in elementary standards, right? Like you have a lot, you talk about like representations of democracy, a heck of a lot in elementary. Mm -hmm. So there's like a place built in for these conversations and that we're not doing it is very telling it seems to me, you know, very telling that it's being intentionally excluded. There have been plenty of civics publications in elementary and the young learner, but they've certainly been void of, of indigenous perspectives before now. I think that foothold of, you know, drawing attention to issues of indigenous citizenship and nationhood and sovereignty within the frame and realm of civics is so important because the ways that indigenous peoples are usually included in the curriculum, if they're included at all, is through this lens or framework of culture, which often positions native people as an other, right? Some cultural other to be studied and to be learned about much like the kind of anthropological project of documenting cultures and 
belief systems and stories and houses, et cetera. And this, this frame of um, civics inquiry is a way to really affirm, and we used that word purposefully in our title, affirming indigenous sovereignty. We thought about teaching about, but we said uh, affirming indigenous sovereignty because it's already inherent, right? It exists, indigenous sovereignty exists. And so civics can be a place where we can affirm native citizenship and native nationhood and native sovereignty um, as we already do kind of local governance, state governance, the federal government, et cetera. For our listeners that are unfamiliar with indigenous sovereignty, um, what do we need to know? What are kind of the basics of indigenous sovereignty, um, how it's existed, what forms it exists? So I think the kind of key word for educators to understand first and foremost is that an it is that native sovereignty is inherent. That means it has always existed and existed before, the, you know, the establishment of what is now known as the United States or even in other countries, what is now known as Canada or New Zealand or Australia. And indigenous sovereignty, which is a nation's right to govern themselves and to determine their own course as a nation, right? Their own future as a nation um, was really solidified when the federal government here in the United States engaged in the process of treaty negotiations with indigenous nations. And actually before that, native nations were already negotiating treaties with each other, right? So native nations were already recognizing each other as sovereign nations, as independent political communities. But when the United States started negotiating treaties, they were recognizing native peoples as distinct political communities, right? Treaties weren't negotiated with individuals, but with sovereign political communities. This is Sarah. I think this this also lends to one of the big problems in social studies, state standards and textbooks is that this is not how sovereignty is described in our in our curriculum. You know, when sovereignty is brought up in state standards or in a textbook, it's always in relation to U.S. sovereignty, popular sovereignty of like Western nations. So this was a really big this is a really important issue for us and wanting to bring it into elementary because this is where that, that language and then foundation is established and then continued to be recirculated as, they, as students get into the older grades. And so understanding that indigenous sovereignty is you know, pre-constitutional um, is absolutely essential to having a, a, a greater understanding of current events as well. You know, so thinking about not only the, the issues for the nations that we include as, as examples in the article, but also the, the recent issues that are going on in North Dakota with the voter suppression or in Massachusetts with the denial of recognition. Um, you know, this settler logic of sovereignty only is about the United States or about France or about England and that those are the only, those are the nations that we have treaties with. It, it really does a disservice to our students and to our communities. I think Sarah brings up a really important point of, you know, nation state sovereignty as being routinely recognized, but indigenous sovereignty is ignored um, and often intentionally degraded, right, by laws um, but I saw this recently, you know, when I went to a, a campus 
coffee shop and all these high school students came and I looked around and they were all replicating the United Nations forum and each of them were taking part in acting as member states. And indigenous peoples don't have a seat at that table. They have kind of a permanent forum on indigenous issues, but they're not able, even though they're distinct political communities and recognized as nations, they're viewed as, you know, through federal Indian law, domestic dependent nations. So they don't have a seat as these other nation states in the international arena. So I just wanted to point out the way Sarah did that asymmetrical power relationship. It's interesting. So when, um, you know, when we have students, I guess the old color in the map and, and learn the 50 states and you, 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 you know, I know, I know. But you don't realize, and this is where I think, uh, well, I think I get a little bit confused, is that we have all these sovereign nations inside of the United States, but they're not often represented in maps whatsoever. And I know that there is, I know that some of this is like, there is some land, and then I guess I'm just more curious about how it all works in the United States. That might have been a terrible question. So I think one of the important things, and then uh, I think I'd love to hear, you know, how Lisa and Leilani experienced this in their elementary classrooms. You know, when we talk about maps and boundaries, social studies, at least in in my opinion, largely comes at that from a Western, Western notion of boundaries and maps, right? So we even talk about in the article, you know, in terms of naming, you know, it's um, not Oregon's native nations, but the native nations um, in Oregon. So there's like a, a way of thinking and working with students to understand multiplicity of ways of knowing and being that that challenge the very Western notion of our coloring in a map. Mm-hmm. And understanding that that is founded in a in a settler way of understanding where people exist. Right. But even within that, still so there there are treaty boundaries that define right that you can't land your balloon right in a hot air balloon in a sovereign nation. Yeah. And so you know Leilani and I are doing a a study right now with our friend Jimmy Snyder on the civic standards in, in New, and New Mexico has done some work to include more aspects of that geography and the boundaries and the, and the idea of government to government relationship. Um, but it is a, it is a, you have to shift your thinking away from just fully westernized, you know, here's where I stick my flag mm-hmm. in the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a different, different in the best sense of like where people exist together and where governments exist. So I don't know how your elementary classrooms have, experience that i know that always struck me too because like a lot of our textbooks like we've been examining lately have like indigenous peoples are they're the first chapter is called first texans and it's so ahistorical too because then oftentimes they're actually talking about groups of people and they're talking about them in a time period before texas was ever even a concept and so it's not even just like um, beyond all the other problems with it, it's just bad, really bad history. Like, it doesn't make any sense. I'm glad you brought that up. And I wondered, like, how many states and textbooks are getting that wrong? And I'm fearful to know that it's probably a whole lot. I, in response to, this is Leilani, in response to what you were saying about a textbook framing someone as the first 
Texans. I just wanted to draw attention to the work of uh, Mexican Tigua scholar Dolores Calderon, who examines, has examined social studies textbooks and has really critiqued that narrative that you just offered, right, of first Texans or first Americans or because it really proposes that Native people were just the first settlers, were just earlier immigrants. In her first one, she, you know, talks about how the narration of the nation itself is this Western <clears throat> colonial construction that actually does a lot of damage to Indigenous contemporary issues, Indigenous histories, Indigenous sovereignty, and Indigenous nationhood. So I just wanted to add, in response to Sarah's question, that in relation to classroom teaching, there's often too much of that focus on mapping and boundaries and filling in these things. And that, I think, one thing that's really clear in this article is that that waters down then the, the rights, indigenous rights that are there. They're, in, as Leilani said, inherent. And so it's actually, to me, a very sort of mainstream or master curriculum to focus only on the mapping piece of it sort of is like the skill right like oh I can locate this or you know, I can understand that and instead to, to me one of the bigger or the, the main point of the article is what do we do so like we have these activities at the end where children are looking at social action in relation to what action should be taken when a group is being denied a constitutional right or as Leilani pointed out it's inherent prior to the constitution and so a good critique, I think, of the curriculum, and one thing I think Sarah was also getting at, is that we don't do a good job of that on the national level, and then it's state by state. Some states do a very poor job of that, and so then it leaves that work then to the classroom teacher to dig that out, where it's really very vague, if at all, in the standards, very vague. And so I think this article is, you know, as the purpose of Young Learner as a practitioner journal should be, to provide materials that classroom teachers can use immediately in the classroom, but it gives content that just has not been widely available in elementary curriculum. And you'll see in the article sort of at the onset, we purposefully set up that there's content there for classroom teachers if they don't have the content knowledge. So like the question at the beginning, what is meant by indigenous sovereignty? That's spelled out there. It's very clear. It's very easy to follow. And then the activities are clearly aligned to getting to that sort of big idea of what happens when a group is denied their constitutional right. And so I think it allows the classroom teacher to do a whole unit, basically, where students can walk away with a, a better understanding of rights at large, but specifically sovereign rights. Do you mind walking us through a little bit about your inquiry? One of the things that we wanted to start with, you know, from the onset is really helping teachers. Because I think the, the more that we were particularly with pre-service teachers, the more we recognize particularly non-Indigenous pre-service teachers lack of any content knowledge or awareness of these issues. Putting, putting up front that we wanted to help practitioners with, with their resources and their learning, but then learning alongside their students, particularly with keywords, and looking up tribal flags, tribal um, government offices, so things that they would recognize, you know, like, because elementary students are learning about, you know, where's town hall, you know, well, where's the tribal government office 
for this for this nation. So getting them to get to to just visualize things that they're f- familiar with, but from an indigenous nation, and then establishing really important vocabulary from an indigenous point of view. So one of the big phrases that we think is really important that teachers hone in on is since time immemorial, right? That indigenous peoples and native nations have been here since the beginning of time, right? Because one of the things that we, that we see is so problematic, particularly a social studies curriculum, elementary curriculum is that time always starts in 1492. It's always framed around Columbus and the, the expeditions from Europe and completely erases, ignores that there are nations already here. And so getting teachers to work with students to re, re-center how they understand time in this context. So, so keywords are really important. And learning, what, learning the word sovereignty, government to government, and also, you know, indigenous, because a lot of students, their, their vocabulary would do it. Do we say Native American or Indian or indigenous or American Indian? And so we provide some links there for, for teachers as well to, to work with students about naming and where names come from and how to go about understanding the words that they use. And so we also use the uh, children's book, The People Shall Continue, because that's another entryway for students using a picture book to get into some of these vocab words, such as sovereignty, tribal citizenship, um, before they then venture into, you know, researching a contemporary issue. Well, and if they want to learn more about the term indigenous and some of the things we can learn around it, Sarah wrote an incredible chapter in Keywords in the Social Studies book that you can check out too. We can add that to our show notes. I'm not just saying that because I get like one cent for every 200 that gets sold. <laughs> well, I, I'd also like to say that that was co-written with yes. Roger Stanton. And we wrote it from our own learning from indigenous scholars about naming. And so it was written from the point of view that we get often asked all the time, not only by our, our students, but from social studies researchers at KUFA, you know, why we use the word the, the the naming terms that we use and so we wrote it from that perspective from what we've learned from indigenous leaders and scholars like Sandy Grande and Dolores Calderon and so many other indigenous scholars doing this work that have helped inform our our teaching one of the points that I wanted to make has to do with what's been the traditional design of young learner articles so if you're familiar with, or maybe if you're listening, you're not familiar with Young Learner, let's say maybe you're secondary and you're not used to it. What generally happens with a lot of the articles is that they have what, like a handout, right? Like a black on mastered handout teachers can copy, use in the classroom. And so I specifically remember when we went through iterations of the article that we spent a lot of time really thinking about what content we were going to put in the handouts for our article. And what I, what I want to say about my co-author, that a true strength they really brought to the article is that we tried our best to be deliberate about what the content was that was in those handouts because we knew that this would be the work that the children did in the, that, uh, in the classroom when they worked in the small groups that we describe in the article. And then when they come back together at the end and they're talking about informed action. And so we thought really carefully about the contemporary issues that we wanted to um, sort of spotlight 
and have them work with. And then the questions that, that they engaged in their small group. Um, we did, you know, we looked at the C3 work, um, but we really tried to make it, you know, based on the C3 framework, really our own in this and be sure that as the students were working through this, um, that the outcome at the end was less about what's designed to C3 and more about the what we wanted students to walk away with at the end and their understanding of sovereignty and rights. And so uh, one thing I appreciate about the article is when you look at the layout of it, if teachers use this with children, you know, they really can walk through those stages and have the students having those conversations or looking at the scenarios, the contemporary issues, and they are truly engaging um, questions that help them not only to relate, but some of it is, you know, in your own life. So why might that conflict be important to your life and to those around you? I think that through attending to current issues that Native nations are facing, we're really asking students and teachers to wrestle with core democratic questions, Right. So what does it mean to be a citizen that can also affirm and recognize tribal sovereignty? You know, so when we're looking at the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and their right to use their own passports to travel, or if we're looking at, you know, people and citizens from the Nisqually Nation asserting their treaty rights to be able to fish, you know, and if we're looking at all the water protectors at Standing Rock protecting their homelands from corporate encroachment from the Dakota Access Pipeline, or the Gwich'in Nation in Alaska and Canada protecting the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. These are questions of citizenship. These are questions of tribal citizenship, like what does it mean to be a good citizen who's protecting your native nation's rights? And then what does it mean to be a citizen of the United States, a citizen that can protect your neighbor's rights, right? That can honor treaty rights. But, you know, and I think that point is just so important. Treaties often get framed as being outdated, but the U.S. Constitution isn't framed as being outdated. You know, the Bill of Rights aren't framed as being outdated. And so this lesson kind of asks students to engage with issues that Native nations are facing, but the idea and one of the kind of activities students can take from this is that they should be examining in their own contexts to find out who are the Native nations in my area, what are the issues that they're facing, how can I become a part of that effort, you know, to help that nation assert their rights. And it just requires a, a simple investigation. I'm working with a fourth grade, a set of fourth grade teachers now who are teaching their students about the Chinook Nation in Washington, who's pursuing federal recognition because they're still unrecognized. And so she took her students onto the Chinook Nation's website. She learned about a campaign that that nation is doing called A Letter a Day. And her students learned about tribal sovereignty. They learned about the Chinook Nation's um, prior federal recognition and then how it got stripped. And then the students wrote letters to the president, you know, and I think this lesson here is, or set of lessons is an example for teachers to also, you know, be adapting to where they live. I mean, at least I think that's our hope. You know, I am really proud that we were able to bring a focus on indigenous studies and indigenous sovereignty into a publication like Social Studies in the Young Learner. But I definitely think this is just part of a broader movement that needs to happen to have Indigenous studies become requisite knowledge, 
required knowledge for K-12 students and required knowledge for teachers, right? And I think we're indebted to indigenous educators in Washington, for example, who've written the Since Time and Memorial Sovereignty Curriculum, or indigenous educators in Montana who have helped draft uh, legislation and curriculum for Indian education for all. I mean, this lesson reflects a lot of the core guiding principles from those states that say elementary kids can and should know about Native nationhood, Native sovereignty, Native citizenship. I want to add too just how important that is and that Washington as well has just passed legislation that all students going through teacher preparation programs have to have this coursework. And so I hope that, you know, they're an example. And I know Leilani is working on this in Oregon and New Mexico is working on this as well. Folks in New Mexico across all of the the governments are coming together. Um, So I hope that what's happening at the local and state level can inspire us to really make and push for changes in Mm -hmm. other states and in the textbooks. And so... You know, I'm really thankful to everything I've learned from Leilani and from Lisa and, and just pushing pushing this into SSYL because it wasn't easy um, to get this done. Um, and then hopefully maybe we'll see this in social ed. Maybe we'll see this more in the conference. With our work, you know, we wrote this for classroom teachers. And so one of the things that we've talked about as authors together and that we purposefully do in our methods class is that Every class meeting, regardless of the content we're talking about, we're always bringing our work with our pre-service teachers back to instructional decision making. So when teachers think about what they're going to include based on what the standard says, sometimes that instructional decision making is affected based on what content they do know. And sometimes it's then avoided based on content they may not feel comfortable with or knowledgeable about. Right. And so. That was a big part of, for me, a personal goal in this um, article is that we could help teachers to have that content knowledge towards instructional decision making for why it should be included in the content, as, as Sarah's saying. But I think it would be remiss if we didn't note openly that young learner is changing. And it's an exciting change, I think. And what I would say about that is that it's changing, especially in regards to a, a turn, I'll say, in what's being published. I think this article is an example of that, that we have often avoided topics that appear to be difficult or controversial that have been coined as controversial. And of course, Indigenous Studies has been. Um, It's been widely avoided. And so we are beginning to see, I think, the journal change. If you look at the issue that this article is in, and then the next upcoming issue, you'll see that it's covered in topics that five, 10 years ago would have never been included in Young Learner. I mean, I just think it's important for us to recognize that as scholars and it re- recognize that in our larger community in KUFA and then in the um, National Council of Social Studies that we are beginning to broach topics that haven't been before and to help pre-service and classroom teachers see ways in which to do these things successfully. And so giving people the tools to be able to do that, I think is really important. These topics are all inherently elementary topics, and you can have thoughtful classroom practice around them. If you're listening to this podcast and you are not that familiar with Young Learner, or maybe you haven't been in tune with Young Learner in the last couple of years, I would encourage you to get a hold of the copy of the issue that this article is in in the next issue, because I think you're going to see 
some of these topics that have been considered controversial in the past and some really thoughtful ways to teach those things. And so that is the September-October 2018 issue of Social Studies in the Young Learner, which, you know, it's really just appreciate the work you're all doing in this area to help teachers figure out how to teach this. And you're just pointing out, like, you know, that this is not controversial to recognize people's rights. I always point out, you know what's really controversial? That we still talk about manifest destiny. <laughs> That's controversial, this this idea that God said, these people take this continent, like, that's crazy, and that's still kind of taught. And anyway, so um, I really appreciate the work you all are doing and helping this to bring the star field, as you said, long overdue. So with your your article, which is a tremendous resource, and again, everyone should pick up you know the article. So you can actually pick up the digital copies of the article on socialstudies.org if you're an NCSS member, or you can get the physical copies through NCSS. What are your final takeaways for educators? Um, who, you know, want to do a better job teaching about indigenous issues and particularly indigenous sovereignty. So this is Sarah. I think you should read as many articles and books um, from indigenous scholars and indigenous educators that you can get your hands on. You know, I think if you if if teachers and teacher educators have not bookmarked Dr. Debbie Reese's blog and website, they need to do that immediately. Like, pause, podcast, go get her website. Her work is absolutely invaluable. I think Leilani's work and Indigenous scholars doing, you know, work on the ground with curriculum in teacher ed. At NCSS, you know, Leilani and I worked on the position statement that NCSS released this past spring, you know, that social studies needs to do a better job. And we need to hold each other accountable for doing a better job and we need to hold our field accountable for doing a better job and for being a better steward in its relationships with indigenous communities and with states like Oregon and Montana and Washington who are and New Mexico who are doing hard work to address these curricular issues. So I think this is this is a start, but go read. That's my my takeaway. Yeah, and there's, there's obviously a lot to learn, and there's some great Indigenous scholars doing work. You can find that episode uh, with Debbie Reese. We have we had her on uh, episode 67, American Indian and Children's Literature with Debbie Reese. And if you want to uh, do three podcasts in a row, you can go back to episode 15, Indigenous Misrepresentations in U.S. History with Sarah Shear. I think that it's just really important for teachers to know that every student who graduates from public schools should know about the indigenous peoples of, in their area, know about the nations in their area, you know, recognize core concepts like indigenous citizenship, indigenous nationhood and indigenous sovereignty. And civics education is a great place for those type of conversations to happen. And this is really important, one, because when we center indigenous students, as the students that we're going to teach, they need their citizenship, their history, their experience, their sovereignty affirmed in the classroom. But it's important even when there's no indigenous students in the classrooms, because we're always educating, you know, the next generation of lawyers, of teachers, of natural resource managers, of social workers, of judges, you know, people who are in positions to uphold or violate tribal sovereignty. You know, and tribal sovereignty is always at risk. I mean, right now we have the adoption case in Texas, you know, where people's racial understandings of indigeneity are eroding federal Indian law designed to protect Native students, so, or Native children. 
So, and like I said, I think this work can happen with really small shifts, like teachers thinking um, instead of culturally thinking kind of politically. So that means, you know, putting up tribal flags in your classroom, you know, um, thinking about governance when you talk about local, state and federal governments, including the tribal nations nearby. You know, these small, when anytime you talk about citizenship, you talk about tribal citizenship also, you know, so these are small shifts that educators can make that can make a big difference in their classroom. So I would just add to that, that you don't know what you don't know, right? And so figuring out what you don't know as the classroom teacher, as the pre-service teacher, as the teacher educator, as the social studies teacher educator, content that you don't know, do your best towards that. And then as you're whether you are a teacher educator in the methods class or a classroom teacher or a pre-service teacher interning, don't be afraid to do this alongside your students, you know, and learn together. And I think this is something that, you know, oftentimes we sort of lend towards very teacher directed, sometimes lecture based. These are not topics to me that can we can leave to be just lecture based, you know, sit and get. I think discussion is really key in looking and allowing the students the opportunity to really struggle across some of the topics and um, think about that, but to simplify it back down to what we're talking about before about just inherent rights and certainly looking for those local examples so that it doesn't seem so much past or so much, you know, Northwest United States and in another place, but how does it apply there in your community? Thank you. That's great advice. And, and yeah, we can't wait till we know everything to start trying to do things right and start moving in the right direction. And, and inquiries, you know, into these topics are great ways to learn yourself and, and, and learn alongside your students. So thank you all for joining us today. I think uh, we know, hopefully teachers at the end of this episode will know, uh, have a lot better idea of, of kind of where they can get going to teach about and affirm indigenous sovereignty. So thank you. SSYL. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Oh my gosh. Secondary teachers, don't be afraid to scale this up to high school. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So can you all tell us where can our listeners find you and your work online? I have a website. It's sarahshearphd.com. sarahshear.com was taken by an actress. So sarahshearphd.com. I have all my contact info there as well as some of my favorite resources. My actual twin took the email drkrutkett at gmail.com, so I can't use that. Wait, you have a twin? <laughs> You're just learning this in episode 94? <laughs> huh. Yeah, if anyone is interested in learning more about my work, I have a website through the University of Oregon that I'm happy to share. I'm also on Twitter, even though I don't tweet that much. What's your it's- handle? At Leilani Sabs. Perfect. We will get. We will make sure those are both linked in the show notes. And Lisa. And we'll tweet you right now. Yeah. This is Lisa. The best way really to get in contact with me is through email, and my uh, university email is Buchanan L at uncw edu. Can I also say really quick, Leilani has a book coming out this spring, and it's going to be amazing, and everyone needs to read it. <laughs> we'll make sure to put that on the show notes as well. So thank you so much for joining us today. We hope to continue this discussion online and in other places. We're all about sharing the learning here at the Visions of Education podcast. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, you can tweet us at Visions of Ed, or you can find us on Facebook too. And if you have not already, you can subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, 
or you know what, really anywhere you want us to be. And if you write us a five-star review, not only will we put it on my fridge, we'll read it on the air. And it makes us feel happy. Make us feel happy, everyone. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.